0: Good morning everyone. How are you all today? Well and blessed, I hope. Alrighty. Well, here we are again. (laughs) Once more, God's drawn us into his house to be blessed with worship and his word. And today we're finishing up a second part of the Revelation chapter seventeen, looking at it's all last week, keeping started up with looking at the great prostitute and the and the beast. And today, we're going to go through the end of the chapter, see just what's, what God is going to reveal for us. Okay, so before that, let's just bow our heads once more in prayer. God, just thank you so much for this day, Lord, that you've brought us once more into your house, Lord, to the place where we, we can learn, well, learn to learn, follow you more closely, Lord. Pray, Lord, that as this message is spoken, Lord, that people would hear and listen and hear your word, Lord. Hear your voice, Lord. Pray, Lord, that just this, as I pray with keeping, that this, the seeds would be planted in this message today. That, Lord, when they enter people's hearts, they would be to produce a harvest for your kingdom, Lord. May it be all things for your glory, for your honor, Lord. For all this I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Alrighty. So go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would. Our first. Our main portion of the text is going to be in Revelation chapter 17. We'll go verses 9 through the end of the chapter, 18. So let me know when you're there. Like, look, look, up, look up when you're ready. Looks like most of you are there. Oh, yes, and if you would stand, please, for the reading of the Word. Ready. So, starting up in verse 9. Here is the mind, which is wisdom, which has wisdom for me. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has yet not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short while. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen, are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns that you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into, the, into their hearts to fulfill his promise to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Well, as Marty McFly would say, heavy. <laughs> 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 you may be seated. Okay. Okay. So, keeping already covered somewhat last week what, what, who, this, who this great prostitute is, but today we'll look at more detail about some of the things that are gonna, going to happen to her and look at the political power that's going to be backing her. So, several main points for today's message. The first one is this. The beast that the woman rides is the revived Roman Empire, previously mentioned in chapter 13. So, we saw at this point that this... Many many of you know that Rome has... long had the nickname as the City of Seven Hills has been ever since the Latin tri- the tribes came down the Italian peninsula and settled there. Eventually, there are seven villages becoming one city. And ever since, Rome has had that nickname. And so it says, some translations say seven mountains, others say seven hills. And it's a rather interesting to see that this Roman empire coming back. But then again, maybe not so surprising. As they say, like the history repeats itself so often. And we'll see another passage later on that... Uh, <laughs> that touches on this point, that everything keeps happening in the world the same old way. You guys to see but that this, but this revived Roman Empire that's actually been a part of biblical prophecy ever since, well, about six centuries before Christ's coming, his first coming anyway. Okay, I'm going to see. And so this revived Roman Empire is going to be the political authority that will back eventually this great prostitute, the one world religion, and eventually, we will uh, <clears throat> well, let's just say some interesting things will happen. Not to give away any spoilers. Okay. Okay. The second main part that we saw that the passage referred to the kings that are the seven, seven on these seven mountains. These kings will rule under Antichrist. It's been portrayed in other, in other media often as like, most most prominently left behind that the that the Antichrist will have ten kingdoms that will, in turn, give him power over the whole world. And left behind, it's like these uh, ten kingdoms are plots of land that end up being, like, being responsible for the entire world's food supply, which will, in turn, give the Antichrist power over everybody and everything. Kind of like, actually, an example you seen in the mind was, like, the White Witch in Narnia. She says she rules over Narnia for a hundred years, it's always winter, never Christmas. So she freezes the land, she freezes time, And the detail that C.S. Lewis doesn't explicitly say, always being winter, she controls the food supply. Who has food? People who are loyal to her. And how does she keep them loyal? Kind of like Edmund food that makes you addicted, it keeps you coming back for more. So that's the same way that perhaps the Antichrist will rule, or at least that's one prediction. But the core point is that the Antichrist will always have power through others, he has no power in and of himself. He's going to gain power through the human authority, through these kings. He'll have divine authority, in a sense, through Satan. But he himself is powerless. Kind of like we saw in Revelation chapter 5 or 6, when we saw the seals being opened. He has a bow, but no arrows. So, so yes, he will always be ruling with the help of others. Then the third point is going to be, ah, this is a good one. By seeing what the Antichrist kingdom is not we will see what God's kingdom is and will be. And of course we're not going to see the full, the full revelation of that, but we can as you see from God's word and from predictions made and through prophecy, we will see, yes, this is what the, we see what God kingdom is in the present, but we also see what it will be in the future. And then Christ comes again through the thousand-year reign and through eternity. So, let's jump into the, uh, the other parts of the scripture, or actually a little history lesson first. I mean, you've seen that, yes, Rome was the city of seven hills, but ever since, ever since, since the time of Christianity beginning, Rome has been, and before that, was a, a religious center. That's why it is compared to, that's why they called this prostitute Babylon the Great. Babylon, the city, was a city of not only politics, but of worldly religion. As we saw worship of such gods as Marduk, of Ishtar, of someone like, let's see, like Ayas of Semiramis, and her son Tamas, tied to Nimrod. Eh, there's an appropriate name. <laughs> yeah, but interestingly, <laughs> interestingly enough, it's also like Babylon, I think they say historically, is where the Tower of Babel was first made. And that's where we see the world religion first start. Interesting enough, that reputation continued, not, not only from ancient times into Rome, but also into Christian Rome. I mean, a little history, kind of history lesson. We saw originally, in the time of Constantine, he saw a way of kind of gaining loyalty to the, to the church, to the church being loyal to him. He saw him give special powers to certain religious, certain church leaders. They, became, they, were, they were bishops of important cities who became known as patriarchs. There were five such leaders in the ancient world, or in yeah, the ancient world, because, yeah, sorry, got my history lesson, but I was like, was it medieval? Ancient, that's right. I said medieval came when Rome fell, so this is during the time of Rome. So, you see five patriarchs, one in Jerusalem, where the church began, Alexandria, which was an important trade city at the time, kind of like San Francisco, then we see Antioch, an important military outpost, sort of a sort of kind of like, I guess you could say like Hawaii. It's an, then we see, fourth one was Byzantium, aka Constantinople, present day Istanbul, the political capital. And the fifth was Rome, the old religious capital. And as the empire started to divide between, bless you. As the empire started to divide between East and West, the four eastern patriarchs all swore loyalty to the emperor in Constantinople, but the fifth, in the west, decided he was going to cut his own deals with the barbarian rulers, like the Goths and Visigoths who came in, and he took on the title of Pope, the father of the church, Papa. And the, and the popes have held authority over kings ever since Gregory the, Gregory the Great, the very first pope. But then we see the Italian, the Italian peninsula gets split up after the Roman, Roman authority fell. The popes actually had their own little estate. They actually called it the papal estates, the lands around Rome. They ruled until pretty much the 1800s for about 13 centuries. And then when Italy reunites, the papal the estates get absorbed as part of the Italian kingdom. But here's the key interesting part. The popes have actually ruled as kings again Ever since 1929, that was what they called these, the time when uh, Mussolini was on the rise as a dictator in Rome, or a dictator in, in Italy, yes. So he, he started taking over Rome for the fascists, and the Pope at the time sends an emissary, one of his cardinals, to Mussolini, and they negotiated what's called the Lateran Treaty. And ever since then, Vatican City has pretty much been its own principality. It's been a non-political entity, a separate from the Kingdom of Italy. So the king, so the, when the Pope wears that uh, the tiara, like the triple crown on his bishop's hat, he's literally proclaiming himself a king, which in a sense he is. But unfortunately, we've also seen that the church, the, the church has actually declined in in role in Italy, despite having the Pope being right there in their midst. Because it, the Lateran Treaty, actually, was from 1929 to 1985. And that's when we saw, as Pope John Paul II called it, Italy was being de-Christianized. They call they would call it secularization. But basically, it, well, Roman Catholicism no longer became the state religion. Church, uh, church education in schools became voluntary, and basically, Italy started to distance itself from its Christian roots. And so, is it any? And yet, and yet, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, it is remains one of the most organized, most widespread, and quote, quote unquote powerful Christian denominations in the world. And so, actually, I actually, remember seeing like a video on this, on this section it said looking at how back in the days of John Paul II, they actually were negotiating with things like witches or snake charmers, basically looking at the, connecting with other religions, possibly. And Dave Hunt, who was doing this video on his book. One writes the beast said the Catholic Church has no problem with the one world religion so long as they can somewhat rule the roost, and it wouldn't surprise me if the Church is trying to spread, if the Pope is trying to spread his authority or his influence throughout the world in such a manner. But that's neither here nor there. The thing, the key point is that uh, that that unfortunately, seeing this, seeing Rome as a, wo- a city of worldly religion, that's not too far off the beaten track. And so, it's no surprise that it will see it hap- if we see it happening again in the future, God's, that'll be God working his plan, using the world as, and, well, the world won't realize it, but God's working, using them as a tool to work his will. Hmm. So now let's take a closer look at what the Antichrist's empire is. We already saw that we looked at the past of Rome, now we'll see looking at what's going to happen. Ah, This is a part of, as I said, looking at things happening the same old way. This ties into... What the? I believe what the scholar, a certain scholar in uh, Jerusalem, I believe many people, scholars, look to him as Solomon. This is in the, his book of Ecclesiastes, chapter one. This will be verses nine and ten. Hmm. So go ahead and let me know when you're there. So, starting in verse 9, That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. <laughs> I mean, you all heard the old saying that Satan has the same old bag of tricks, the only, the only basic three, and he just keeps, keeps changing them around. The world operates the same way that, we, that's why the historians say that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, because and even even today with our with the whole modern inventions and all the amazing technology we have, that's basically just a new version of what used to be. It's actually something I saw in a in a book for my senior thesis in college called "Flickering Pixels: How Technology Shapes Our Faith." One of the one of the things he presented the the author was Shane Hips. One of the things he presented was this idea of 4D vision. I'll only go, it's like four different ways that technology can be viewed. The one that applies in this case is the first. You know that the, uh, <laughs> you remember, the kids who grew up in the 80s and 90s will remember uh, a little toy called Stretch Armstrong, <laughs> little rubber guy, uh, stretch him out, pull him, twist him. He always comes back to original shape, but the idea of stretching, your, stretching out through technology was the image that Shane Hips was going for. That all technology is basically just an extension of the human body. That's the, the camera, is just an extension of the eye. The computer is an extension of the brain. The wheel, like we have in our cars, extension of the foot. So everything, and everything that we have today is just a recreation of everything we've seen in the past. I mean, was, I mean something we've seen since the Renaissance age. Everything that we have in the modern age is just a recreation of something we saw in the ancient world. It's all been done. And the Antichrist kingdom is going to be the same way. In fact, that's what you see, I like mentioned earlier, that yes, the Antichrist kingdom is going to be a recreation of Rome. It should come as no surprise, therefore, that, he's going, that the Antichrist and the prostitute will persecute Christ's followers, just like classical Rome did. And we saw it all the way from, so they say from the 1st century through the 3rd century. The, what call the, the historians call them the 10 persecuting Caesars, starting with Emperor Nero in the Julio-Claudian dynasty, ending with Diocletian just before Constantine. And in fact, Diocletian, they said, was so, so awful to Christians, he was like Nero reborn, they said. Again, nothing new under the sun. Okay. Interesting enough, yes, that Christ did, interesting enough that Rome did the persecution after, did the persecuting after Christ's first coming, and we're going to see this new Roman Empire do the persecuting before Christ's second coming. See a pattern here? Hmm. But interestingly enough, even though it's going to be a revival of the Roman Empire, it's not going to be the same. But part of this is what we see in foretold in the vision in Daniel chapter 2. Are you familiar with like, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar? Not, not the whole golden one, the one with different materials. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. Well, it should come as no surprise, we've seen in Daniel, we see the ten toes of the statue... And the ten horns of the antichrist's kingdom. This is in, described in Daniel chapter two. Okay, verses. I'll skip through the whole thing with the vision, but we'll go through straight to the to the appropriate to the appropriate text in chapter two, verses forty-one through forty-three. this is where we see Daniel has. Described the the dream, he's interpreting it for Nebuchadnezzar. He's described the different kingdoms, the main kingdoms that have happened. And then the fourth kingdom, you see, on the feet mixed of iron and clay, this is going to be a continuation of the fourth kingdom, which was Rome. Looking at the verse 41 Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they shall mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to each other, just as iron does not mix with clay. Yeah, at first, I thought, if you go in the literal sense, it just that they put clay at the bottom of a statue. I mean, think about all these heavy metals. you got gold, silver, metal, and iron all sitting on top of iron and clay feet? How, how's that thing staying up? Must be, must be a pretty good support system. But then you think of the prophetic meaning, looking at that iron and clay. So going back to what originally happens in Daniel, what happened was God was t- showing Nebuchadnezzar the advancements of the different kingdoms that would follow. He says, Daniel actually says to him, "Yes, you are the head of gold." Without going too deep into it, the Nebuchadnezzar was, thought his, his kingdom was the best because the Babylonians saw absolute monarchy—my word is law—as the best government. Following them was the Medo-Persian Empire, which was somewhat larger, but it had a quote inferior government from the Babylonian view because they had a constitutional monarchy which meant even the king had to obey the law and couldn't change it. Going from there, we see the warrior kings of Alexander the Great's kingdom, that's the bronze, and then going on to the military dictatorship of Rome, the iron legs. So we see iron is representing the old authority of the military power of Rome, which will be part of the Antichrist kingdom, but then we see clay mixed with it. Well, there's some who have tried to interpret that, which interestingly enough, like say, leads to some people to interpret the clay as being a, perhaps a symbol of modern democracy, a sort of mixture of military power and power of the people. But do those two really mix well? Hmm, not really, because that's why I say they. they that's I say they don't gel well. I mean, you can try to mix them together, but it's not going to really mix. And yet somehow. It's going to work. I think of it almost like, I'm guessing, that's some like like a military coalition with these kings that the Antichrist will rule through. That, yes, he won't have the absolute authority of the Roman emperor, but he'll still have mil- enough military might to dominate the world, and he'll be able to do it for years. I mean, say he's going to make a, co- make a covenant with the nations for seven years, and then he'll be able to make war on them, and he'll last in- all the way until the end of the tribulation. So he's got enough power to stay enough military might to stay in power, just not enough to dominate the way the Roman emperor did. But in a sense, that also may be some of his greatest strengths, perhaps. They said, like, some people say that with words, diplomacy, a symbol of the bow without an arrow, he will not, rule, he will not convince people to follow him through fear, but through persuasion. So perhaps that's how he'll be able to keep, keep his kingdom from falling apart, that his charisma, his pure savvy, so to speak, will keep them working together. He's the link that binds them all together. Which leads us into, ah, going into that coalition, who's going to be ruling with him? Looking at it, we saw, ah, a key interesting part of what we saw in chapter, looking better in Revelation chapter 17. So the key part that stood out to me, something about the, look at the Antichrist being the beast who was, and is not, and yet is. It's mentioned in, that was in verse 11 of the chapter. It's also mentioned in verse 8. we Are we going here? So verse 8. Yes. Yeah, so the beast that you saw was, and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition, they say. That's in verse 8. Verse 11, the beast who was, and is not, is himself the eighth of the kings, and is of the seven. That stuck out to me. The, someone who was and is not. Mm-hmm. Like, then I thought, like, think about like, when we see in Revelation chapter 13, when he first appears, one of his heads seems to have a mortal wound and it is healed. I think we, when we looked at that, we said it was some sort of a false resurrection, as if the Antichrist will be possessed by a demon will make it look like he's come back from the dead. And yet it also stuck out to me, it's in it does even big, bigger meaning that. It says it's i looked at me and i thought gee sounds just right up satan's alley everything that god does satan tries to either destroy or counterfeit so in this way as we just as we see the antichrist reflecting satan in this way this thing about him being who he was and is not it's a perversion or quote-unquote a sad imitation of the trinity god's nature being someone who who was and is and will be forever had eternal nature, and yet because we saw the antichrist will try to be worshipped as God, but all he can do is make a little sad little imitation of who of God's nature itself. Why does he? Why, why is he only able to do a sad imitation? Because he lacks the very substance and nature of who God is. It's like going back to the numerology. The God's number is going to say, seven. That number of completion. And man's number is six. No matter how close we try to reach, we always fall short. Coming back to the coalition, this interesting. Looking at these people who called who are called kings here. They operate actually. You see, I remember they actually are portrayed in chapter thirteen. They were the horns. They said the beast has seven kings, has seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. Not on his heads, but on his horns. At the horn is a symbol of strength, and these beast kings who rule with it, they wear the crowns because part of the antichrist coalition. And so they, in a sense, are like representatives of the antichrist. They will rule on his behalf and with his authority hmm Ironic, in a sense, looking at this, again, at this satanic kingdom. Something that struck me was, on the way over here, was that they mentioned in the beginning of the chapter that this is a scarlet beast. And I thought, wait a minute, that sounds very familiar. And then it struck me, that's right. In chapter 12, we saw Satan presented as a red, or scarlet, dragon. Seven heads, ten horns, what do you know? Sounds just like this guy. That's another tie that makes the Antichrist, and again, an, an, a follower or an imitation of, of Satan and thus a perversion of God's plan. Satan is trying to create his own, quote-unquote, false messiah, and follows his nature, whereas Jesus, as the Son of God, follows the nature of the Father. Hmm. But Interestingly enough, the thing that this, they are called kings, but they rule with the authority of the Antichrist. Kind of held me back to, ah, to, something, to the first time we hear about kings in Israel's history. It ties into 1 Samuel chapter 8. As you're turning there, the quick recap with history. Israel started off with a the theocracy as a nation. They, as we saw, they, they were tribal, tribal, uh, tribal people who were animal herders. They were herdsmen. And then they travel to egypt become slaves and then god establishes them as a nation at mount sinai so that's where he sets up the theocracy where the priests and the prophets moses ruled on god's behalf or ruled as the human authority the go between the mediators between god and israel then we see after they get into the promised land and joshua who's moses's quote-unquote successor dies they go into a time of anarchy the so judges under the judges temporary rulers they are there for a short time, but as we see, going onward and onward, the nation and even the judges themselves get into a moral, de- into, go to moral depravity until Israel's become almost just like at the end, like Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's there we see the last of the judges, Samuel. He comes in. He's the he's a serving like Moses. He served as priest and prophet and ruler. And then we see, as Samuel gets old. His, his uh, legacy is not looking too good. So that's what we see in chapter 8, chapter, verses 4 and 5. Then the elders of all Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And at this request, Samuel's like, What? What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, I'm an old man. My sons are, like, my sons are corrupt, but why are you asking for a king? Because the thing was that Israel says, give us a king. They mean like, they reject by... So God comes back to Samuel and says, yeah, grant them the request, because see, they're going to regret what, they, what they've chosen. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. Yes, you've been a good judge, but they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, because I am the king of Israel. And it just shows that a transition going from theocracy to anarchy to monarchy. But one of the things that they want, they want a judge, but they also want a military ruler who will protect them from enemies like the Philistines. And the Philistines were a very dangerous enemy, because not only were they an armed military force, an organized force, they also had iron in an age where everyone else, had bronze. And if you know anything about bronze, it doesn't hold up too well against iron. And so the people want, they, they say, even though God has fought for them from the time of Moses all the way through, in fact even before Moses, all the way from the time of Abraham when he rescued Lot from the civil war of the Mesopotamian kings and the Canaanite kings, God has been Israel's protector and judge. So now they're saying, like the world today, God, you're out. One of us, we're in. Again, going back to the Tower of Babel, saying, let us make a name for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, interesting enough, the God gives them someone someone in charge, but uh, if you look down at chapter 9, where Samuel is introduced to Saul, God says, he's speaking to Samuel, chapter 9, verse 16, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you... I'm oh, sorry little distraction and I will send you I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him my translation says commander over my people Israel that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to, come to me so some translations say commander other translations say ruler and if you look at the original Hebrew, God's giving them someone in charge, but it's not the king they asked for. He's giving them a ruler, or the original language also reads prince. So God has never kicked off his throne, but he does give them a human leader. and Just like the prophets and the priests before him, the kings will also rule as part of an authority on God's behalf, and the kings will only stay in power either whether it's the line of David or whether it's the kings over northern Israel, they will only rule as long as God allows them to. And just as the Antichrist will be used by Satan to unite this world order under one government, that's the political authority, now we see the religious authority, the prostitute, will be used by Satan to unite the world under one religion. Going back to what I mentioned in the Tower of Babel, I've mentioned a couple times the exact references in Revelation, in Genesis chapter 11. And so we see, again, the one world religion being brought into existence. So in chapter 11, going through verses 1 through 6. Starting to verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of of shinar and they dwelt there then they said to one another come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar and they said come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are of one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. So interesting enough God, So they, they decided to build a city a one world religious city and a tower that's going to reach up so I think we 've looked at this before look at the the formation of the ziggurat it was a kind of like the it was sort of a model for both the pyramids in Egypt and the temples of the Mayan culture in the, in Mexico. there was, was a layered a, like a layered kind of like, like a layered cake with ramps going up the outside between the levels but this is a tower that is basically, quote unquote, a referred to all the other places in scripture as a high place. Going back to the old model of the oldest model that we saw of the world, when we, the way we viewed it, the three tier universe. Back when we thought the world was flat, they thought that there were three different realms in the in the world. The first was the heavens, where it was the realm of the divine. Nothing changed. Then we see the flat plane of earth surrounded by water. Where it's the realm of the mortal, people live, people die, life goes on. And then we see underneath, the underworld. A place of the dead, where everything goes when it dies. And that's why the reasons they built these high places. They thought that there were certain ways you could get to the different realm, that different layer of the universe, by going between them. For traveling to the underworld, they thought you had to, well, go to a hole in the ground. Either, whether it meant a cave or digging a hole, like, say, a grave. That they thought that the spirit went into the ground and unto the underworld, so therefore, the body had to follow. But the same thing happened going upward as well. They thought you had to go up to the mountains. So we see the rise of the, the, the mountain deities in history. For example, ah, where did the Greek pantheon live? Mount Atlas in Greece. And God actually uses that model to meet Israel at Mount Sinai. And later on in Jerusalem, where, does he, where is the temple built? Mount Zion, the top of the Jerusalem's hill. But that's where we see the Tower of Babel being the same thing. They, they're trying to reach heaven, and they're trying to set up a world religion of their own. And God looks at them and says... Obviously, there's no no threat to God, but he was looking at the corruption of humanity, saying, just a few hundred years ago, we had the flood, and now people are starting to going the same way they did before the flood, becoming morally depraved, all their actions are evil, if they they build this thing, there's nothing they won't try to do. Yeah, I know, little lady, it's a little big concern. (laughs) And that's why they call it the Tower of Babel, because that's where God causes everyone, literally, to babble. Split the one-world language into all the dialects and languages we have today, so that humanity could not unite, at least not right away. Obviously, today we see with the UN and other other factors that have happened along the way, that we've come to a greater sense of, of unification or trying, of communication between people, and we're starting to see that joining back into that march toward one world. But God put that delay in there because he said, if I, if I let them do this and I do nothing, then they, then basically the whole, the whole redemptive work of the flood is going to be undone and Christ will not be able to come because corruption will happen too soon. So God delays the process of human unification so that his plan can be fulfilled. Interestingly enough, we saw, the, we saw the, later on in the chapter of Revelation that we see that the kings and through them the Antichrist, and the Antichrist himself, he's acting through the kings, are going to turn on the prostitute. She's riding the beast, but eventually the beast is, well, kind of like the whole story with Slewfoot Sue from Pecos Bill. What happens when he let her ride his horse? Woo! She's off! And that's the same thing that the beast is going to do. He's going to buck her off, just stripper of everything, and take it all for himself. It's mentioned, actually, foretold in the six centuries before John the, John the Apostle. We see it in Daniel the prophet's writings. The God is speaking to Daniel through the angel Gabriel. We see in Daniel chapter 11, going from verses 36 through 38, is the, the text we'll be looking at. Speaking of, this is related to the older prophecy, but speaking of also the Antichrist, starting verse 36 after he's in the, you know, the appointed time comes, then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every God, shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. for what has been determined shall be done. He shall, regard, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, the precious stones and pleasant things. Sounds sounds familiar? Mm-hmm. And so that's what we see. That's what many dictators or king, many tyrants of the past have done. Again, as Ecclesiastes said, nothing new. So the Antichrist is going to honor himself, as we see in the book of Revelation. The image of the first beast is set up. The beast from the earth, the false prophet, is going to call the world to worship the first beast, the Antichrist. And, let's face it, what 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 revel- what government has there been where there hasn't been some sort of personality cult in place? I mean, we saw it with, in the, just the 20th century, we saw it with Hitler and the Nazis, the whole thing with Mein Kampf, the, Hitler's book being their quote-unquote scripture. We saw it with the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. I mean, basically, like with Stalin, he just got rid of everybody who was smarter than him until he's the smartest guy left and said, okay, I'm in charge now, do what I say. Whoa, let there be light. Oh. Huh. We'll talk later special effects <laughs> but anyway going back to yes that the Antichrist is going to again like Satan whom he imitates and who he serves he's going to worship himself he's going to honor himself again no surprise right if they reject God they say they say actually I think Saint Augustine of Hippo one of the great theologians of the early church said that he said that the, that the Christian, the Christian, that people are like a donkey or like a horse. You either have God or Satan in the saddle. It's kind of like a book I read called *Lampers Meadow*. Being some people on this side or that side, and if you don't choose a side, you're an undecided, decided. If you have rejected the light, you've automatically chosen the darkness, mm-hmm. even if you don't admit it to yourself. Okay, drawing us into the third point, looking at, ah, we saw with the Antichrist kingdom, it's says we see that everything God is, Satan is not, and so Satan ruling through the Antichrist kingdom, by seeing what the Antichrist kingdom is not, we will see what God's kingdom is. Hmm. This draws into, drew me to think of a, a question I heard back in high school, as I was going through apologetics, I think. People often ask, if God is so good, why does he allow so many bad things to happen? Why does he allow evil to exist in the world? The answer? The darker the world gets, the brighter his light. By seeing what, they take the quote, by seeing what darkness, by seeing what the absence of light is like, you come to appreciate light so much more. And so by experiencing evil, we learn to appreciate God's ultimate goodness that much more. It's like, well, for now I'm taking a drink of water. Only by being without water could I really appreciate how great it is to quench your thirst. Same thing. It's like it's, It says in another verse in the Bible, it's the Psalms, As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul panteth for you, Lord. back there? Ah. You know, let's take a look at the interesting things we ever see. Ah, the verse that tied into this for me was looking at, ah, going back to <laughs> the command after God's own heart, looking at King David himself. Obviously David had flaws, but his heart was in the right place before God. So we see going back to the early book, the book of Psalms, which David wrote many of. We're going to see in Psalm chapter two, the first six verses. This is where we see a picture of a picture of God looking at so God looking at sinful humanity and saying, "Well, look at their look at their plans. Look at what they've got uh, planned." And look what I and they literally find out and see what I've got. I think that's an old saying. It says, "God like man plans, and God laughs." Reminds me of a Bizarro comic when uh, from the nineties or early two thousands. The two angels are in heaven. One's waiting to speak to God. The angel says, "The other angel says, You have to wait. He was watching his favorite comedy channel. <laughs> What's he watching? The weather.'" <laughs> it's like, it like, Kind of like goes back to uh, ah, Back to the Future. When when Mark and Doc is helping to set up to wait for the lightning strike, you sure about this weather storm? Are you sure about this lightning? He says, Martin says, eh? Let the weatherman try to predict the weather, let alone the future. <laughs> and so we come to Psalm chapter two, verses one through six, that very imagery. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. to think that, yes, the, Satan and the Antichrist have their plans, their human coalition, they're followers of demons, and yet God's going to say, uh-huh, I don't even have to lift my pinky to defeat you guys. I could just say one word, and you're all gone. And you, you think you're going to stop me from, like, taking over, you see, you've taken over the earth, you've taken over what's left of humanity, you've got everything under your power, you think, and yet... I am going to have my way, whether you like it or not, Satan. So kind of zooming in on what you saw there, looking at God's design for his kingdom and contrasting that with that of the Antichrist. So under Satan, Antichrist's kingdom is going to be one of illusion. Whether it's through demonic power or technology, he's going to try and cast an illusion to put everybody under his spell. That's the worldly kingdom all well, God's kingdom will be one of revelation. As it says in the world, God is light. All things will be revealed. He will make all things known to us. He's not going to try and... God does not deceive us. He does not try to give us some false idea. He presents the word, thing, ideas, as it is. In fact, there's actually an image I saw a while back that I have on my phone. It's about this uh, picture of this cylinder being shown in two different lights. On the blue light shows a square, showing from one side. The other other light showing the other way shows a circle. Which one's right? That's the interesting thing that there's going back to my college classes. They said, my professor said, Here's how reality is there's reality as you see it, reality as others see it, and then there's this reality as God sees it. So he won't just review this. Or this, he's going to reveal this. Everything as he sees it, that's what he will make known to us. Since God sees all and knows all, pretty comforting. (laughs) And also comforting that he's going to give us a body and and he'll glorify us so that we can actually take in everything. Because I think if he tried showing us everything now, I think it would absolutely blow our minds. (laughs) Short circuit, shut down. Ah, the other part, tying into that, Antichrist's kingdom is going to be one of deception. That illusion that he casts will be to deceive, to bring people into his way of thinking, to draw us away from God, whereas God is going to, reveal, is going to be a kingdom of truth. I mean, that's just part of his nature, that everything God says is true, it's accurate. Reality is as he determines it to be. And God's going to reveal everything to us as it is. Going back to to Daniel's Daniel's chapter 2, when he saw Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the kingdoms, we saw a statue of multiple multiple materials, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay, and what takes him down? A stone. A rock. Interesting that it's something that's of nature that takes down these man-made kingdoms. So everything is Going to, so everything the Antichrist is going to rule is of human, man-made design. And whereas uh, Kind of like we saw the, the golden calf the, uh, at Sinai. And while everything God makes, like the Ark of the Covenant, is going to be of divine design. Hmm. It, it, kind of people looking back to, to like the Indiana Jones adventure, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Where's it hidden? Is it in, is it in some stock room in Washington? Is it in Ethiopia? It's in heaven, silly. What we have here is just a just a man made imitation. This the thing that hammered together by the craftsman. God had that was all just made off the model that God's got in heaven. We don't have to worry about where the ark is. It's in His throne room. In fact, some say God it is His mobile throne. That yes, that God, everything God is in God's kingdom will be according to His divine word and design. Again, kind of like going back to the, the imagery of human versus divine. And Antichrist's kingdom is temporal. It had a beginning, and it will be, it will end. And then God's kingdom, like him, it, it was, it is, and it will be. Kind of goes back to the two Greek words that I learned about at the end of my college career, Chronos versus kairos. Two different Greek words for time, but each one with its own meaning. Kronos is where we get our word, our word chronological, or chronology, that linear time, from here to here to here to here. Whereas kairos is the Greek word that we use for basically eternity, time beyond time, where there is no beginning, there is no end. That's where God exists, and that's why he is immutable, that he was, is, and will will be, and he will always be the same, because he does not exist in chronological time. He started it with, let there be light, and he'll end it with, it is done. The last thing we look at, we've looked at throughout this, this message, that the Antichrist kingdom is domination by Satan. That we are, all those who exist in the Antichrist kingdom, that they're all a part of it, they're slaves. They're dominated by an evil power that blinds them, that chains them, and directs every action of them. Whereas God's kingdom will be of one that is freedom through Christ. As as Paul pointed out in in his epistles, it's not freedom to sin, it's freedom from sin. In the antichrist kingdom, like everything else, Satan has made you have no choice but to sin. It binds you, and gives you no other option but to do it. Whereas Christ came to remove those chains, so that we may serve God in, as our free will agent once more. Kind of gives you hope for what's coming, doesn't it? Knowing that this is what the world will be, and here's what king, the kingdom of God's kingdom has always been, and will be again. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you have brought us once more to be fed and to nourished through your word, Lord. Pray Lord, as we just take these, as we take these words and we go out from this place, Lord, that you would just plant that, the word in us, that we would give us that sense of hope, sense of rejoicing that, yes, while the world may, may be round for a time, your kingdom has been forever and will be again, Lord. That you have a plan to give us a hope and a future, and that all we need to do is to follow you, Lord. That you will—you've already carved the path. You've set the destination. All we need to do is follow in your footsteps, Pray, Lord. That as we were led by the ha- as we were led by hand, the children as we continue to follow you, follow the vo- your voices at grown-ups. Lord, that we would just continue to be faithful. That we would be good witnesses. For that we would be. Faithful witnesses, Lord, that when we come to, to your kingdom, you may say, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into thy rest. May we continue in the work you have invited us to join in, Lord, that we may rejoice with you at the time when the work is completed. I pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.